Hello and welcome, I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We are Knee Deep in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 137, recorded on October the 22nd, 2020. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We, um, we had a bit of a, shall we put it like this, logistical snafu. So that's why we're somewhat off kilter with the, um, the timing and stuff. But now we're back on our regular program schedule. What the COVID is a snafu. A snafu? You do you not know what it. a snafu is? No, I don't know what a snafu is. A snafu is a military term that is situation normal all <laughs> up. <laughs> I just love it when I get to use that button. Yeah, so I noticed you got a new soundboard or something. It's built into the Go XLR. And oh, okay. if you were to buy the big Go XLR, it has many more buttons and a mm-hmm. sampler. So I could sample Simon and just use that button over and over and over again. And I didn't get the big, the big one. I think that is a good thing for the world. Yeah, the more buttons, the merrier, right? Yep, that's how we work. The more samples of Simon, the better. Anyway, here are the headlines. Power BI came out with a new version or Power BI desktop last week. And I've, I've dove into a few of those parts. We now have a Microsoft Edge for Linux, the MS Server Summit, and the fact that Microsoft will not open any offices until July. So I, I can just go for it. And um, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this because we talked about prototyping more than once. And the way I see self-service BI is as a primary prototyping tool because I can let people have some data, work with it to their heart's content, and then when they're done, so to speak, with with insights, they can come back to the IT department and we can put this into the um, the curated and, and the more well-kept uh, BI environment. So with this update was um, one thing that kind of enables something that came out almost exactly a year ago. So a year ago, something uh, called... Um, PBIDS files came into being. And a PBIDS file is, it's very simple. It's a text file that creates a new blank Power BI file with a connection to a data source. So instead of me going in or telling a user to go into Power BI desktop and telling them to go find data somewhere, I can just give them a blank slate that automatically connects to a data source. And previously, you had to write this PBIDS file on your own in a text editor or use a, a tool uh, that uh, PowerBITips.com came out with. And sure, that's, that's one way to do it. But now from the October version, you can export your data sources as a PBIDS file from inside a Power BI desktop. So this is just a, a teeny tiny thing that makes it even easier to distribute Power BI DS files and encourage uh, data exploration pretty much. How do you authenticate to that data source? I'm very happy you asked that because I was hoping you would. (laughs) 
it's it's a great question. And it is actually pretty simple. In your PBIDS file, you specify the data source, but you do not specify the password for the user. So the first time you open up the PBIDS file in Power BI Desktop, you're going to be presented with a logins prompt that asks you to authenticate to the data source. But you don't need to figure out how to get to the data source. You just need to figure out how to log into it. But that's that's making things one step easier for the user. Make sense? Yeah, but how does that support all kinds of authentication you could have to a data source? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, the only thing that it does is that it takes away a few clicks. I mean, I can start from a blank slate and just go get data, choose my data source, and then whatever authentication scheme in, in place is going to be popping up. Here we just bypass the whole me clicking get data and inputting the string. That's already in the PBIDS file. So tell me if I'm missing the point or... I think you are. <laughs> so if I use Power BI and connect to an Oracle database, mm -hmm. I would be prompted with the Oracle authentication for that data source. Yes. The data source in question here is Oracle. If you're accessing a, um, a SharePoint site, you're going to need to log into that SharePoint site. If you're ask, um, asking, if you're accessing a data lake, well, you need to have the credentials for that data lake. There, there are days that I wish that people could see our faces when we are recording because Simon is not having it. Yeah, you can almost see the gears turning up there. Yeah, and I would say that they're spinning freely. Tony, you, you, you're the identity expert. Yeah, well, that sounds reasonable to me. What he said. <laughs> okay, I, 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 will, I will think for a while and then probably realize that I were stupid and never get back on the topic. I think you're overthinking it. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> well, that's a good point, though. And speaking of overthinking things... You remember the conversation we had a few weeks back about uh, going uh, Windows going to Linux and the idea of Windows going into Linux? Uh, I just realized yep. that the um, the maintainer for Canonical, uh, one of the other Linux distributions, he put up his own editorial where he refuted the whole thing. And I think his arguments were pretty interesting because he pointed out that, well, it would not make any sense for Microsoft to go on to a Linux kernel because you would lose so much of the backwards compatibility that is part of the Windows core. And I think that's that's an interesting take on it, but I still think that we'll see where we're going to end up. Well, I suppose it could be like a special edition of Windows then. So, oh, you know, God. you continue to have your regular one and then you have like a Windows uh, 10L or something like that. <laughs> Can we call it Windows 10 ME? <laughs> I, I think Tony's onto something. Like the Windows Cloud Edition that they have been spoke, speaking about for ages now. That could be Linux-based because you wouldn't do anything other but web, basically. That's a good point. So basically taking Windows 10 in S mode one step further, but with all the benefits it would have in running on a Linux core. Yeah, I'm, I'm still desperately searching for benefits for Windows 10 S. <laughs> I, I can still see a few of them, but uh, I think I now would rather recommend running like IGEL OS or any other 
thin client or Linux distribution. Yeah. And speaking of Linux, Microsoft Edge is now on Linux. Yeah, which is something I've been looking forward to. I did my Teams dog and demos on Ubuntu and had to use Firefox on um, that release. And I showed that it will soon be available. And one week later, it's here. Uh, so we now have the Chromium-based Microsoft Edge running on Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora, and OpenSUSE. And I'm sure you can run it on anything if you just compile it yourself. Yeah, and like I wrote to uh, my good friend Fredrik Bratstig, one of the newest uh, remote desktop RD, uh, MVPs uh, with uh, Igel, uh, can you run this on Igel OS? And it took them like two hours to get it running on Igel OS. And I think most of that time was spent trying to figure out how to get more coffee. Yeah, and probably how to download the file. The coffee? Yeah, download Java. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I just got a horrible flashback as well. So did I. I Suddenly you can have a headache, but oh yeah, oh yeah okay, moving on. But uh, the, the Linux release is just generally available now, because I know the preview was out before, right? No, they haven't had any of them out, I believe, because this is the this is the dev channel. All right. Yeah, I I, th- I I was under the same impression as you were, but I don't think it's it it hasn't been available through the regular channels at least. Uh, could I ask two questions then, Simon? Yes. The first one is, what kind of demo did you do on Ubuntu? Uh, why why were you using Ubuntu? Uh, so I showed uh, how to secure Microsoft Teams on any platform. Since we are working from home, many organizations probably can't afford to provide all of their users with a standardized Windows machine. So I showed how you can give your users access to Teams in a secure way uh, on any platform. And then I chose to do demos on Windows, Mac OS, iOS, and Ubuntu. And I would have done Android as well if I had time to do five different operating system demos. But... uh, it went fine, and it, it works great, and you have full control of your data. That, nice, nice demos. And my, my second question is probably about as stupid as your question about PBIDS files. Why would you want to use Microsoft Edge on Linux? I think that's a very good question, and I think that we are only scratching the surface of what that will enable us to do. A lot of the security features that Microsoft are integrating in Windows or in in Edge is just that, in Edge. So now we have the ability to use Azure AD as an example to get single sign-on, to get settings synchronized and still be in control of that contained environment. I do expect to see things like data containerization, security features implemented on that so that you can actually benefit of all the security features, the manageability, the productivity of Microsoft Edge across any platform. Wait, are, so are, I, you, are you seriously saying that Edge is going to be used as kind of a, a sandbox for all these cool Microsoft features? It, it wouldn't surprise me that they would do that in the long run. Wow. That is clever. Yeah, and, and since they, it's, and sorry or the, all the Linux experts out there, but since it's open source, 
would there be anything that would prevent Microsoft from connecting really deep down into the kernel of Linux and do basically what they are doing with Windows in terms of virtualization and such on Linux through Edge? No, as long as Microsoft shares the source code freely. No, no issues at all. And I think that, and so that's one point. The other aspect would be that we, if we were to allow access to some web applications and such in Microsoft Edge, and Edge were able to speak to the Linux operating system in some way, just getting the version, the patch levels, whatever it could be, that would allow us to do full conditional access on Linux as well. And this, I want to be very clear, this is only speculations, but that's what I would expect and hope for. Yeah, I was just about going to ask you about conditional access and and uh, browsers. Cool. This is not Balmer's Microsoft anymore. Certainly not. And I, I, I really like that they are doing this because this means that you can embrace productivity even on a Linux platform, even on a very, very cheap operating system. You just need to be clever in how you configure the access, the security, and the data um, governance. And speaking of security, the uh, Microsoft Edge bounty program has just also been extended to Linux. So I, uh, we will see if any of my colleagues uh, would like to give it a spin and see what they can find. Your people break stuff. They do. But they also fix a lot. Maybe. For the right price. The price is always right. Tony, the Microsoft Server Summit, it doesn't sound very exciting, doesn't it? Uh, not really. It's a yearly event, if I remember correctly. So it's a day once a year where they are just talking about the latest updates to the Windows Server platform, pretty much. So I'm not expecting any big things this year, but uh, I suppose minor updates. All right, but we are not going to be seeing any any real big changes. I mean, we did get Windows 2019, but that was last year. Right, right. So yeah, I'm not expecting any any huge updates this time around. Uh, but the summit is free, of course, being an online event, pretty much as everything else today. So it's the 29th of October now. Oh, right. That would be a Thursday, correct? Yep, next Thursday. Or, yeah, depending on when you're hearing this, of course. Yeah, there, there's that. This will probably be coming out on Monday or Tuesday. A Monday or a Tuesday. You're not going to commit to any specific dates. Cool. Before we started recording, we had a bit of a discussion about the uh, new, or shall we say reinforced guidelines from Microsoft, Simon, when it comes to the uh, the offices. We, we did speak about the working from home permanently uh, in terms of Microsoft and other companies in our last episode. And um, Microsoft previously said that uh, they believe that employees expected the earliest possible reopening date for its US offices to be January 2021. And I think the entire world can agree on that won't happen. No. So the new plan would be to officially reopen the US offices in July 2021. That is at least the the working hypothesis right now. Yeah, exactly. 
there are people working in the offices currently. But is it just like essential people, you know, the infrastructure guys or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So do you remember when um, Microsoft and, and, well, the whole world basically started forcing people to stay home? Microsoft stepped in and paid the salaries for all the, the people that work at the campus. Do you know if that is still the case? I would assume so. Are you referring to like cleaning staff and cleaning staff? Yeah, um, caterers, um, everyone who I mean make the whole thing work. Sure, I, I would be surprised if they weren't. Yeah, but but then again, they could have cut down on the amount of people. There is that. That would be quite cynical, but it would kind of make sense that we will keep some staff, but not all staff. But the staff we will be keeping don't have to work but we will pay the pay their salaries until we reopen just to keep them there because the like the amount of work that they would have needed to put down on getting all of those people and businesses back would probably been way bigger than keeping the ones they already have yeah and i mean we're seeing layoffs all over and especially during uh, especially the the uh, the airlines are being hit very, very hard. Airline and, and uh, the, the hospitality industry. Yeah. So I've actually, while, and this is a first, I've been able to read while speaking. The US divides the COVID states into stages, being from catastrophic, which probably is stage one, to it's fine, which is stage six. And that's what they're basing the, the work from home strategy on. So I'm reading now from the CDNet article. According to Microsoft message this week, working from home is still strongly encouraged. However, there are expectations for states in stage three to allow people with difficulties to work from home or to work on site. During stage four and five, employees are able to opt to return to company work sites on their own, as long as they abide by occupancy limits, health and safety requirements. And then stage six, it's fine. And they can all go back to work if they so desire. And is there any part besides, I don't know, rural Nebraska that is stage six in the U.S.? No. Uh, as of now, all states in the U.S. are in stage three, officials said, with the exceptions of California, Oregon, Nevada, Utah, and work sites in Fort Collins and Boulder, Colorado, which are in stage two. Huh. And again, stage two is not as bad or as stage one but it's still worse than, than stage three yeah that's how numbers work usually funny you should say that speaking of numbers that was a pretty good segue tony thank you for that one i've had a number of really interesting discussions about uh, data and machine learning and actually today i had a workshop talking about ideas for applying machine learning to problems. And one of the, the biggest issues with machine learning is that when people kind of get a hold of them, they try to uh, use it for everything. It's the old saying, when C++ is your hammer, pretty much everything looks like a thumb. And when machine learning is your idea, well, you try to force it onto anything and it just doesn't work. But we had some pretty interesting ideas and I 
tend to work very much with real estate these days. And one of the, the most obvious things to do with real estate is energy optimization, where you either can have sensors and actuators on heating, on water, on electricity, and all that kind of stuff, but also where you can use batteries as a way to um, take out uh, peaks, power peaks. If, if power is expensive for a short period of time, well, then you draw your, your energy from the batteries and so on and so forth. It is very clear that the whole machine learning and the data field is starting to wake up. People are starting to see the uh, ideas and people are starting to really think outside of the box. The funny thing, the funny thing with machine learning is you can't do machine learning if you have not explored your data. But people tend to jump straight to machine learning and think that, yeah, I have data, we can do machine learning as if it's a... Um, canned thing and then off we go you do have some auto ml stuff automatic machine learning for instance inside of power bi but the uh, the big things i'm i think are going to be inside of normal or, or more manual machine learning so what are your thoughts on machine learning have you come into contact with any of this stuff in your work areas yep uh i have been using it very in a li very limited way for um, data classifications. So where you can train uh, a machine learning model based on a set of words which you supply it with. But then again, then you do the opposite. Then you don't need to explore the data. You are providing the data to the learning model. Sure. And I can't say that that sounds like a very complicated machine learning model, even though it probably is. Well... That, that's a good point. I mean, what is complicated? Something that is easy for a human to explain can be fiendishly difficult in practice. But something that sounds difficult, uh, like um, identifying what's in a picture, can be surprisingly simple for a neural network. Uh, but it, it, again, it sounds complex. So don't, don't fall for the, this can't be so hard fallacy. Words are still words. Words follow a very specific pattern. Sentences also do that in most cases. So that, to me, sounds like a simpler model than even finding things inside of a picture. That That's true, because what you're describing is a very well-defined data set and a very ordered way yep. that, the, that the model can kind of uh, attach to, to scaffolding. So, yeah, I agree. That's like a very suitable ML model for yourself. I would, on the other hand, be very a very complicated... ML model since I'm not in any way structured, organized, or um, easy to foresee. No, you're not an unlike a, a neural network. You have some <laughs> input, something happens, nobody knows what, and there is output. Not necessarily what you expected, but you have some output. Would that be reasonable? I think I'll print a t-shirt with that. I'm like a neural network. You're a black box. Yeah. <laughs> input something, output. <laughs> I, I, I can show you where the input and the output goes. Uh, okay, now let's just switch subjects here. So yeah, I haven't done really nothing with uh, machine learning this far since I don't really work with data as such as you guys do. 
However, I can still let you know that I have actually uh, set up Azure Defender for servers uh, this week. And also, drum roll please, Azure AD ATP has been set up on the, uh, the first domain controller. So we are getting data. Well, well that's sort of data, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I was just about to say that Azure ATP or no, Microsoft Defender for Identity is machine learning. It's what it does looks at patterns and if you break the pattern someone will scream sure so this far it's working just fine uh, just getting the initial data right now as we speak so uh, and more domain controllers will of course follow suit or all of them great i think that's a it's a very underestimated product yeah well i've used the on-premise one uh, before previously when, when it was just called the microsoft advanced threat Analytics. analyzer yeah, yeah, so I've used that one on-premise before, uh, but this is pretty much the same thing, only that it's in the cloud, so. Yeah. How well instrumented is Windows Server? And and what I mean by that is, how many data points, if you will, how many sensors do you think that ATP is, is looking at when it comes to finding patterns? Ooh, I don't have any numbers, but I'm expecting that to be a lot. Yeah. And and also, if you use both the Azure Defender and the ATP, they can also work together. That is pretty cool. And looking at the query builder for Microsoft Defender for endpoints, you have like a hundred, no more than a, like 200 different uh, categories to choose from. So it's gathering a lot of data. But is this all going into log analytics or some? other area in in azure yeah i would guess so even for defender atp it does some kind of machine learning model prior to that or with that as well but uh, the kql language is is what you use to query the data so i'm guessing that's log analytics yeah uh, it's not as obvious as it is with uh, azure sentinel but i'm guessing it's it's something like that in the background so shall we kind of wrap this up with um, a weird one, Simon? Licensing and workplace architecture? Sure. Uh, so I was in a workshop today uh, in regards to Microsoft security features. And this customer, which I told them is one of the very few customers that already have gone the entire circle uh, of getting Microsoft 365 licenses running them for two or three years and now realizing okay we over licensed the first time since since my view is that most swedish organizations saw microsoft 365 licensing three or five years ago and thought oh what should we do and they did the swedish logom thing and went for e3 the middle one uh, but for some uses that's too much and for some uses it's too little that's the definition of logom yes <laughs> uh, so this company uh they um are now looking into how they can save money on licensing by downgrading some of their E3 users to something else. Uh, and then I told them that, yeah, you, you can do that, but to remain on the same level of security, you would then need to redesign your workplace concept. Basically saying that you shouldn't... Like, you can save on lowering licensing but then you will have to change the way you do IT to remain on the same level of security. To keep the same way of working as they have today, 
and limit the security features they have access to will in practice leave them more vulnerable than they are today. So therefore, if they change the workplace strategy for the people that would be air-quoting downgrading from E3 to F3 as an example, they need a new workplace design that would be suitable for the security features they are getting. So it's not as simple as downgrading. If you want to maintain the productivity and the security, you also need to redesign. It's not just to... trying to find a good way of describing it, but uh, I, I will come up with something. It, it is way more complex than just the money. And I think that is a very, very good lesson in general. Yep. Why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? And if saving money is your end goal, well, then you need to take a holistic view on the whole thing. Yeah, and, and if that's okay, if you the, your main goal is to save money and you are prepared to lower your security posture while doing that, that's on you. But I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, especially not in the world we're living in today. And on that security bombshell, I uh, think it's actually time to end the show. Thank you for listening to Knee Deep in Tech. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast.kneedeepintech.com. We'll be back next week. Meanwhile, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.